Sprinklers. The main function of a sprinkler is to distribute what's given to it. The quality of a sprinkler is judged by how effective it is at distributing what is given to it. The best sprinklers have no water loss from the supply to the nozzle and are able to cast the water evenly and uniformly as they were designed to do. Now the worst sprinkler would be one that simply absorbed the water that came into it and didn't do anything with it. That would be a useless sprinkler. In fact, we would really consider it not a sprinkler at all. There are different kinds of sprinklers for different purposes. There are sprinklers with a long throw for casting water a great distance. They're kind of like a water cannon. There are sprinklers with a fine mist for watering delicate plants. There are pop-up sprinklers, and there are the old-school, drag-it-around-the-yard type sprinklers. There are sprinklers on wheels and sprinklers on spikes. There are colorful sprinklers and camo sprinklers and everything in between. A sprinkler is dependent upon receiving a constant supply in order to fulfill its purpose. It doesn't make water itself. If there's no water supply to the sprinkler, then it becomes little more than a tripping hazard. But when it's connected to the supply source and water flows through it, it comes to life and it fulfills its purpose, distributing what is given to it for the benefit of all around. Sprinklers and Christians have a lot in common, or at least they should. We'll talk more about that a little later today. Now, as I said a moment ago, we are beginning chapter 4 of the letter of 1 Peter, where Peter, he pulls together a number of the ideas that he has already talked about in his letter, and he challenges us to put these things into practice, giving our all to following Jesus Christ. So, we'll begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 4. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Peter's picking up on the train of thought that he left back in chapter 3, verse 18, pointing to the example of Jesus who suffered unjustly for doing good. He suffered in his body to the ultimate end to death itself. And Peter says here to us, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. We're to have the same attitude, resolve, mindset, way of thinking that Jesus had towards suffering and hardship. What kind of attitude or way of thinking is that? The person who has the same attitude or resolve or way of thinking as Jesus will be the person who is described as Peter has here in verse 2, where he writes, They don't live the rest of their earthly life for evil human desire, but rather for the will of God. Jesus lived his earthly life for the will of God, rather than personal interests and desires. Peter's choice of words here, I think, is interesting. He says, arm yourselves with the same attitude or way of thinking or resolve that Jesus had. The word translated arm was used to refer to equipping oneself with weapons for battle. 
preparing or making oneself ready for a coming struggle or challenge? Well, what's the weapon or the thing that we are to equip ourselves with here? The mindset or thinking or resolve or attitude that Jesus had. That is what we're to be equipping ourselves with. Well, what's the battle or the struggle or the challenge that we're to be making ourselves ready to face? Suffering and difficulty that comes from being a follower of Jesus. Like soldiers preparing for battle, followers of Jesus are to prepare themselves for suffering that comes from being a follower of Jesus. You probably didn't like to hear that. Peter, he amplifies on this same idea a little bit later in the chapter, down in verse 12. He writes this, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. In a broader sense, suffering and hardship can have a very positive impact in our life. The experience of suffering itself is not pleasant. It can be excruciating. We don't really want to sign up for that. But the benefits can be priceless. It can literally save our life. Here's an example. For when we are living a life of sin and rebellion against God and His Word, when we are pursuing, as it says here, evil human desires in our life, the thing that often finally gets our attention, wakes us up, clears our head, causes us to change direction is suffering. It's a sad observation about human beings that until our sinful behavior is challenged and we suffer consequences for it, we will just keep right on doing it. When a person gets off track with their life and they begin to create justifications and excuses for what they're doing, it almost always takes some kind of painful crisis in their life to get them to stop. And reevaluate what they're doing, doesn't it? If pain and suffering doesn't come, we continue to operate under the self delusion and false assumption that what we're doing is working for us. That we're managing things in our life, that others are okay with what we're doing, and God is okay with what we're doing. Suffering can cause us to be done with sin, as Peter writes here in verse 1, and instead to start living our life for the will of God. When we finally run smack hard into the painful consequences of our sin, then we say, enough! I'm done with it. I need help. My life is out of control. Jesus, help me. Come into my life and change me. I can't do this by myself anymore. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, to endure hardship as discipline from the Lord. It tells us that the discipline, the suffering, is not pleasant at the time, but it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace in the lives of those who are trained by it. 
verse 3, Peter writes, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. When we come to the moment where we finally surrender our life to Jesus Christ, an interesting thing takes place, doesn't it? Things that we used to use to prop up our life and find pleasure in begin to lose their luster and flavor. They start tasting bad. We don't want to do those things anymore. We no longer get the same kind of pleasure kick from them that we once did. There are some things that we find ourselves struggling with for the rest of our life, but there are other things that we are just done with the moment we're born again and follow Jesus Christ. As Peter writes here, we, quote, have spent enough time in the past doing these things. We have no need of them anymore. These things don't have any life-sustaining power in them. In fact, just the opposite, they drain our life energy away. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, He creates life in us. This life that He creates us, that's what we hunger for, and that's what we're drawn to. Verse 4 says, They, unbelievers, are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. I remember when I first became a Christian, people I used to spend time with, they didn't understand why I stopped doing a lot of things with them. They heaped abuse on me in their own ways, remarking how I had become religious. They didn't understand what had happened to me. But I had done enough with that. I had spent enough time in the past doing those things. I no longer found the same kind of pleasure in those things. I had found something else that satisfied me at a deeper level than those other things had ever done for me. My attitude about all of life had fundamentally changed. I wanted to please God with my life. I wanted to know His will and do His will. And see, I, I knew He loved me, and because He had saved me from the empty life that I had been living and given me something better to live for, I wanted to live for Him. Don't be surprised. If people treat you differently because you are a follower of Jesus, that can be a good sign rather than a bad sign. If unbelievers are never uncomfortable with your life, maybe you've strayed from Jesus a little too far. A life that is committed to following Jesus can, by its very nature, be challenging for others to be around. You may not at all be judgmental toward people. You may not be saying anything about Jesus to people. But the character of your life can still speak to them about their own life. And that's okay. That's to be expected. Verse 5 says, But they will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. A day of reckoning is coming 
Everyone is going to give an account of himself or herself to God. Every one of us are going to bend our knee to him. And it can either be the easy way or the hard way. The choice is ours to make. The easy way is to entrust our life to Jesus Christ and follow Him depending on His grace and His goodness. The hard way is to do it the Frank Sinatra way. I did it my way. Trust me, you don't want to do it your way. It will not go well for you. Standing before God with nothing but your own life history as justification for why He should allow you in His paradise will not work out well for you. You will surely be weighed in the scales of God's judgment and be found wanting. You will come up short. None of us want to be judged by our own merits, not before God. This next section, verses 7 through 11, contains several short admonitions for us to take to heart as followers of Jesus. The first one in verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. The end of all things is near. The second coming of Jesus Christ is going to happen. It is nearer today than it has ever been before. It is nearer today than it was yesterday. I remember the second coming of Jesus Christ was a hot topic during the decades of the Cold War, when the possibility of us nuking ourselves out of existence between us and the Soviet Union was a threatening reality that everyone had on the back of their mind. Interest in the second coming of Jesus Christ again became a hot topic in the spring of this last year, didn't it, as the pandemic was beginning to spread rapidly across the globe. People were asking, is this the end of the world? Is the second coming of Christ coming? You know, although the topic of the second coming, it gets hot and cold in popular culture, the reality of it has never cooled off in the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is coming back. Christians in every age have looked forward to the imminent return of Jesus in their lifetime. And so we too are looking for and expecting the return of Jesus in our lifetime. It's good for us to remember that Jesus is coming back. He's our hope. Everything that's awful and unfair and messed up and wrong in this world will be made right when Jesus comes back. Not when our politicians finally figure out the magic formula. It'll be when Jesus comes back. And that will include your life and my life. He's going to make us right. He's going to fix us, making us whole and complete. We look forward to that. We hope in that. He says, therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. These character traits are essential for effective prayer. Alert, clear-headed, focused, watchful, vigilant. That's what that word means. Sober-minded, disciplined, self-control. Effective prayer is focused, deliberate, disciplined, directed, 
by godly wisdom and insight. These character traits are essential for living a Christ-honoring life. Without alertness and sober-mindedness, we're like a ship at sea lost in a dense fog with no navigation equipment and no rudder for steering. We don't know where we're going, we can't see the dangers ahead, and we have no way of directing our course. We are at the mercy of the wind and the waves being blown and tossed about. Think of alertness as the ability to plot your course through life using the Word of God and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And think of sober-mindedness as the determination and the effort needed to follow that course. Verse 8 is this next admonition. He says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. This is the fourth time in this letter by Peter where he tells us to love one another. He says, Above all, of greatest importance, of highest priority. This is the core value of Christian morality and how we are to interact with one another. You might remember that Jesus said that the most important commandment is to love God, and the second most important commandment is to love others. He says, above all, love each other deeply, earnestly, with determination. What kind of love is he, being, is he talking about here? It's that word agape, agape love, it's not a romantic love, it's an act of the will. It is the kind of love that God has given to us and He has demonstrated for us by giving the life of His Son for us. Paul describes this love in 1 Corinthians 13. We've read this passage many times before and we will read it many times again. Because it's important. Because it's such a core issue for us. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love's, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Always protects. Always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. We can be commanded to agape love others because it's an act of the will. We can't offer the excuse, well, I don't have any feelings for that person. Feelings are not required for us to agape love another person. It says... Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Agape love is necessary for our relationships with one another to survive. We have to love each other deeply, with determination, with a forgiving, generous, merciful, gracious love. Our relationships with one another, they won't survive without this kind of love because there are a multitude of sins that occur between us. That word multitude, it means a very large number. Every meaningful relationship between people involves a multitude of sins, disappointments, shortcomings, failures, slights, mistakes, 
oversights, misunderstandings, selfishness, meanness, indifference, the breaking of trust, the breaking of promises. Let us love one another deeply with determination because love covers over a multitude of sins. This next admonition he gives us is in verse 9. He says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality, what is that? The Greek word for hospitality is the joining together of two root words that mean friend and stranger. So the literal meaning of the Greek is love strangers. Hospitality means to be friendly and generous toward others, being willing to share what we have, caring for others. The idea of hospitality in our own day is usually thought of as something that we extend to our friends and our family. In the Bible and in the world that Peter lived in, hospitality reached out to include even strangers. See, we, we have what is called a hospitality industry in our own day, don't we? Which includes hotels, food and drink service, travel, tourism, and so forth. It's all part of the hospitality industry. The world of the Bible didn't have a lot of that kind of service Instead, travelers were dependent upon the hospitality of the local people. Romans 12, 13, it says, practice hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2, it makes a, an intriguing comment about hospitality when the writer says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Genesis 18 is an example of that. Abraham, he showed hospitality to some strangers who told him that his wife Sarah was going to have a baby soon. Those strangers turned out to be angels. In the next chapter, Genesis 19, Lot, he showed hospitality to some strangers while he was living in the city of Sodom. They too turned out to be angels. Maybe you have entertained angels unaware. It says to do this without grumbling. Being hospitable to others, it isn't always easy or convenient. In fact, Sometimes when hospitality is needed the most is when it is inconvenient and difficult for us to offer. Peter tells us to offer hospitality without grumbling, without complaining. Instead, we should offer our hospitality willingly and cheerfully. This pleases the Lord. Over in Philippians 2.14, Paul tells us, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, it says there. Finally, verse 10 and 11 are our final admonition here. It says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and the power forever and ever. 
Amen. God has blessed each of us with gifts, talents, influence, position, resources. And these things have not been given to us to simply spend on ourselves. They've not been given to us for our sole personal benefit and enjoyment. They're to be used to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, Peter tells us here. These various gifts and talents and resources, they're all expressions of God's grace. There are as many different expressions of God's grace as there are people. We each have been given a unique, special expression of God's grace to share with others. Our responsibility to God as a good steward or administrator or manager or trustee of this unique expression of grace that He's given to us is to share it with others, serving others. We've not been created by God to be storage containers. We've been created to be distributors. He created us to distribute His grace, not store His grace. We're to be like sprinklers. You see? I told you it was coming. We're to be like sprinklers, distributing the love and the grace that He puts into us. In fact, because we are not intended to be storage containers, when we fail to distribute and share what He gives us, when we fail to let His love and grace and gifts and blessings and resources flow through us to others, then what is in us begins to go stale and rot and stagnate. Like a pond without an outlet. Slimy moss starts to grow and we start turning green. People who are storers rather than distributors, they find their spiritual fruit and gifts diminishing over time. There's not a constant nourishing flow of God's Spirit present in their life. If all we do is take in and not give out, just storing stuff, we're not going to grow spiritually. We need to be sprinklers. We need to give. We need to distribute. We need to share. We need to let God's love and grace flow through us. We can't be spiritually healthy and growing unless we distribute. When a sprinkler is connected to the supply source and water flows through it, it comes to life, fulfilling its purpose, distributing what is given to it for the benefit of all around. And the same is true for us. God's grace is to flow through us, given to others. That's when we truly come to life and we fulfill our purpose. Remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
We were made to be sprinklers, not storage tanks. Sprinkle! <laughs> Sprinkle the world with God's grace. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for these good words spoken to us through the letter of 1 Peter today that remind us of who you are, who we are, what our purpose is. And Lord, we ask that you would indeed make us distributors, sharers, sprinklers of your grace and love to the world around us. Lord, that the fresh, nourishing, life-producing power of your Holy Spirit would flow through us, changing us and changing the world around us, Lord. We pray that Jesus is lifted up and glorified in our lives. In his name we pray these things. Amen.